Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack Down the Pub. Uh, my introductions just get lazier and lazier every week for this. Uh, today we're going to be discussing mankind's greatest achievement. Uh, we have with us Rebecca Radil. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> uh, how are you doing? Do you know what we're going to do, okay. right? Do you know what we're going to do? Because we know everyone's not okay. We know we're all saying, oh, it's really nice. We're all right. There's lots of people in a worse situation than us. But we are British. We do like to moan. And let's face it, we've all pretty much had enough of lockdown though. So, Rebecca, what's really pissing you off about lockdown? Oh, God, the list is endless. Do I have to pick one? Or can I go on for an hour? <laughs> <laughs> what, are you, what's, what do you really want to do right now? I'd like to go and sit in a beer garden with all my friends and just get rid ridiculously drunk that sounds epic oh and so far away uh we also have with us ian sanders cold war conversations podcast hi ian hi there hi really getting on up your nose right now what would you rather be doing if this was not happening um i'd rather be traveling i'm just fed up with living with it it's almost medieval at the moment you know i'm just traveling within three miles of my home um, so just being able to travel further afield is what I'm really missing. That's exactly what it is. I mean, we're essentially allowed to go to market once a week, aren't we? And that's it. Except there's no tavern and no wenches and no male equivalent of wenches or anything fun <laughs> to look forward to. Um, yeah. Emma, Emma Southern's back because she just wouldn't be the same without her down the pub. Now, Emma, what's getting on your nerves? Cooking, I think, is getting on your nerves, isn't <laughs> it? Cooking. I'm so fed up of cooking. I'm not very good at it. I don't particularly like it. And I've been doing it every day because I'm furloughed and I just want to go out for a meal. I want someone else to do the washing up, god damn it. You were saying, like, because you're furloughed and your partner isn't, that basically you've been reduced to this female stereotype, gender stereotype, haven't you? I have. I have to do the hoovering. I have to do all this. I've been, like, well, not, like, he's not making me or anything. I just feel really bad if I'm not really doing anything and he has to go to work. So I'm doing all of the housework and not making him do the hoovering, which I used to. Um, And, yeah, it's rubbish. I'm not cut out for it in the slightest. Um, our barfly James is here. Hi James, how you doing? Hey, uh, yeah, um, things I've been annoyed about. Let's just say just space, privacy. I mean, you've seen I've been out my back garden most of the week just to have some space. And yeah, running out of things to read and alcohol, it's like, hmm. 
I have noticed that proportionately when we do this show, the people that have been on more than once, we are just drinking more and more every week on these things now um, because our moods are plummeting. Uh, we also, <laughs> Alina's here as well. Alina, you can't get a cheeky Nando's because you yeah. made a silly decision to move to Poland. Um, so what's pissing you off apart from spending all day every day with me on the phone? Loads of things. Oh, I miss you every day. Every moment I don't spend with you, I'm thinking of you. That's definitely not reciprocated, but carry on. Uh, you just broke my heart there. <laughs> I'm heartbroken. But um, anyway, no, I am missing a few things. Um, the simple things like going to the gym and having a coffee with a friend of mine afterwards, That that is probably the thing I miss the most. That was the one thing that made my week after working on some really hard history. So, yeah, that that's it. We also have with us today a newcomer. We have Andrew Lay, who's joining us. He's an, he teaches A-level economics, um, and he's an enthusiast joining us today, and he's in Winchester. Hey, Andrew. Hello. Yeah, also known as some guy who replied to a tweet. And yeah, more for you for getting involved in the conversation because we basically kidnapped you and dragged you on here. But what well, are you missing? I've been a bit of imposter syndrome or something. I love cooking, and so what yeah. I'm missing is, is uh, horribly middle class. I'm missing the availability of flour. <laughs> it's so my true. baking projects have gone completely downhill i had to buy bread the other day terrible <laughs> first world problems i love it uh and we have with us uh, yeah, absolutely, one of, absolutely one of our judges we haven't got a clue where he is uh he's just not here uh but the not so honorable Holmes is with us he's probably doing an urgent injunction appeal or something but probably he'd like us to think he's probably just eating stinky cheese or doing something normally Johnny like something weird with a cauliflower but how are you Holmes I'm all right I don't mind this actually I'm you know um I was supposed to be going to the Somme tomorrow but obviously that's a bit disappointing but I'm all right in in many ways once it finishes it'll be quite quite good good to get back to not drinking as much get back to normal to be honest (laughs) do you know I have done something to cheer you up today you know you've been nagging me and nagging me and nagging me to get Pete Brown on who writes about the history of beer yeah. He's here, so don't squeal like a little girl. Hi, Pete. Hello. How are we doing? <laughs> uh, well, we're pretending we're fine, but we're really not, as you can hear. Uh, Pete is the author of brilliant books like uh, Pie Fidelity, which is an attempt to celebrate patriotically British food without sounding like a Brexit racist, is what we decided before you came on, wasn't it? But you also write about the history of beer, and you've done a great one about Shakespeare's yeah. local, yeah. haven't you? Yes, yeah, beer and pubs, uh, an enduring fascination with them, really. And and that's what I'm missing so much. Oh, my God. I mean, people often said to me that I've got the best job in the world writing about beer and pubs. And then overnight, pubs cease to exist. I mean, this is like, you know, when I go to the pub for a pint with my mates, I'm enjoying myself and I'm also working. And, and I can't do either of those things anymore. That's driving me insane, I have to say. Do we all feel a little bit better after a cathartic whinge? I do, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah very much so, actually. Because I suppose, essentially, we are all okay, but in other ways, we really aren't, um, and we're not going to sit here and pretend that we're great and none of you out there are doing shit right now because I think we could all just do with this being over. Uh, I sit there personally looking at all the football yeah, matches so I bored. couldn't be bothered to go to, thinking, when will I next get a chance to go to a football match? That's not fun. Yeah, and I suppose this podcast wouldn't exist. My husband's a Liverpool supporter, so... <laughs> Sorry, oh, we're all going to have to have a laugh. I know. He's a, he's a bit gutted. 
Well, how many days now do we think until they just decide to abandon the whole thing like they have in France and Holland? Never. No, no. <laughs> no I, 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 I My team's it. had a shocker this season. So. Yeah. So. <laughs> but anyway, let's get on. Uh, let's get on with this. Let's try and divert people with an amusing and witty uh, debate on mankind's greatest achievement. Uh, I'm going to start with... James, just because it'd be really cruel to make Andrew go first when he's never been to the pub before. Um, James, what have you chosen? Uh, apparently Johnny will be here any minute now, um, but Holmes can catch him up. James, what have you chosen and why? Yeah. I have chosen the exploration and surveys of the Mariana Trench, or Marina Trench as some prefer to call it. And obviously, for those that don't know, this is the deepest point in the Earth's oceans. Uh, well, Challenger Deep within the Mariana Trenches. However, it's not the closest to the core. That goes, uh, that acknowledgement goes to the poles. However, I've chosen this because there's only been three, no, sorry, four manned descents tried to get to the bottom of this. Obviously, the first most well-known is the Batiscape Trieste in 1960. Obviously, they originally thought they reached the bottom. However, they were actually quite far off the bottom in the end. I think they reached 10,916 metres of the depth. Now, this is important because that was the first signal that we could reach the whole of our oceans. I mean, some might argue for space, but it was actually, I'd argue it's easier to get to space than to get to the bottom of our oceans. And even nowadays, still the majority of our oceans are unexplored, even though they're technically surveyed. I mean, if you just look at MH370, was it the one that went missing over the Pacific? They've still not found it. But the Trieste's descent was the first sign that hey, we could get to these places. I know the Trieste later found the USS Thresher, if I remember correctly. And the second descent wasn't actually made till, I think it was about 2012 by James Cameron. And they had to design their own, uh, not Bathyscape, but they had to design the Deep Sea Challenger just to get to the bottom. And they beat the depth by about 10 metres. And then the latest one, and this is why I've also chosen it, is the uh, the limiting factor, which was the latest one to do the descent. And it's actually made two descents, so it's the first one to do two descents to the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. And just the the technology behind it, the effort that has to be put in, and that we've only recently been able to return like multiple times with a submersible. It just blows my mind, the technology, the effort, the time it takes, the pressure you have to deal with to get down there. It's just insane that we can travel to outer space quite easily now. I mean, there's even talks about tourism, but to go to the deepest part of the Earth's ocean, it takes just years and years of effort. All right, uh, Holmes, have you got any questions? I'm assuming you will have. Yeah, I've got a few. I mean, it's it's quite incredible that it was 42 years or something between the two man dives. And I think what James didn't mention, in the first man dive, that was done by Auguste Picard with uh, Lieutenant Don Walsh as well. They were in the, the Trieste. Yes. 
what must have been incredibly frightening was that one of the the, 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 the Trieste, the bit, the pod on the Trieste, the two men were in, had two portholes, as I understand it, with two bits of reinforced glass. And when they yes, got and the one cracked, down, yes. one, one of the bits of glass cracked, which must have been incredibly frightening. But why is the why is why is it that there was a forty-two year gap? Is it because actually people weren't that bothered? There wasn't that much to discover, or is there something more than that? Is it just because it's really technically difficult? It is extremely technically difficult and expensive. There was two unmanned um, journeys in between. I think the last one was in two thousand and nine. And the, it's just designing things to survey down there. It's so expensive, so tricky. They only recently managed to design a hydrophone that could go down that deep. Um, before they couldn't send a hydrophone down more than a mile. They did that in July 2015. They then lost the hydrophone and only discovered it in, I think, November of that year. And the amount of data it collected was full after 23 days. There's just so much they don't know. Uh, they're planning to do it again. Uh, that was meant to be in 2017, but I've seen nothing about that. Um, but yeah, that we've still not reached the bottom. I mean, it was Victor Vescotho that managed to do the record descent of 10,927 metres, which doesn't sound like much, but it was the immense pressure seven miles under. If not more. Also, the the Trieste expedition was supported by the USS Wandank, which is you have to be really <laughs> careful when you say that. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's why I was trying to be uh, diplomatic and be vague about it. <laughs> but what what knowledge did we gain, James, from it? You know, I mean, obviously. what knowledge didn't we gain? We obviously gained a lot of the knowledge of what was down there. It well. The composition of the sea floor, the types of uh, organisms that are down there. They originally fought flatfish, and then they think it's now sea cucumbers. There's just so much data that I don't even think some of it's been released yet, because I've been trying to find the information of what they found, and it's just... The, the details aren't there, so... You think that means they found bugger so all? Much, and it's... <laughs> I, mean, I mean, potentially, but also you've got to think the success of that is what it led to. It's like now we can survey the whole oceans. I mean, look at what's been found in deep oceans since. I mean, Titanic, for example, the Thresher, loads and loads of shipwrecks. Fish with really found. big eyes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. It's, no, 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 no. It's, it's fair point. It's just got to think. It's greatest achievement because it's allowed us to then go on and discover more things in an area we still don't know a lot about. Which Johnny, is quite odd. Seems we know more about our moon than we know about our oceans. Johnny, welcome. You all right? Thank you. Yes, yes. Sorry, just sorting family dinners out and all that kind of stuff. No worries. You did miss. We all had a cathartic whinge about the thing we want back most or the thing that's pissing us off most. Do you want to get one in about lockdown? Most people, it revolves around um, alcohol. <laughs> yeah, no, a, a, pint, a pint with my pals in the pub would be um, would be very welcome at the moment. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's one of life's simplest pleasures, but one of the best, um, and I could could do with that. Um, just quickly, sea cucumbers. Can you pickle them and eat them with cheese? I have no idea, to be honest with you. <laughs> it's worthy of research, someone, I think. 
could, could always the cheese with too. you. Always with the cheese. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, you're gonna There's manage to res- <laughs> you're gonna manage to restrain yourself because Pete Brown is here. You can say hello. Hello, Pete. How you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Not too bad. He Excellent. has been warned about the likelihood of you guys fanboying, so he's prepared. Um, have you got any more questions for uh, James? No, apologies, James. I, I, I caught the, the very end, um, but I'm going to try and do a little bit of reading while we're um, while we're on air, um, just to know a little bit more, and so I can give it good due consideration. Okay, let's. Yeah, that's totally fine. Okay, let's move on a bit. Who am I going to go for next? I did have all this planned, and as usual, I started drinking, and now don't have it planned. Uh, let's go for Ian. From Cold War Podcast, Cold War Conversation Podcast. Thanks, Alex. Um, now, unsurprisingly, my greatest achievement is Cold War related, and it is that we didn't destroy the planet in a thermonuclear war. Um, it's a reasonable sure. choice. Well, it, it is, but I think sometimes people don't realise how close we actually came, either by accident or by uh, deliberate action um most people are familiar with the cuban missile crisis but people are less familiar with a fellow called vasily arkipov who was um on a soviet submarine that was being harassed by the u.s navy off the coast of cuba and the u.s navy were dropping uh demonstration depth charges on them which are quite difficult to distinguish from the real ones because they still go bang and the captain of the submarine that Arkhipov was on uh, thought that he was under genuine attack. And this submarine was armed with nuclear torpedoes. So in order to launch these, there had to be a unanimous vote. And Arkhipov was the only guy in the command structure of the submarine who said, no, let's not launch them. Let's check with Moscow. And thankfully, he did. But that wasn't the only case of us being really close to nuclear war. A lesser known uh, situation was in 1983, where um, the Soviet leadership had got really nervous about the Americans. Ronald Reagan was president and was coming out with rhetoric like the evil empire. And the Soviets really believed that the US were planning a first strike on the Soviet Union. And conveniently, NATO decided to run an exercise practicing a nuclear strike on the Soviet Union. So this was in November 1983. The Soviets were obviously monitoring this, monitoring the radio traffic, and as part of the exercise, things went radio silent and all sorts of indications. The Soviets got so nervous, they had aircraft at the end of runways and were readying ICBMs for launch. And then suddenly the exercise finished. Um, And... You know, nobody knew what was how close we came, although British intelligence had a double agent in the Soviet embassy who warned Margaret Thatcher and said, the leadership are really scared you're going to do a first strike. You really need to ratchet down the rhetoric. And that was the start of the change in the relationship between both the US and Britain with the Soviet Union. So we came very close, but we managed to successfully avoid it. Johnny, any questions? Um, yeah, quite a few actually. It's um, good. I'm it's, 
It's sort of something I'd, I'd, I've been quite fascinated by the, the whole premise of this for, for, for some time, and it does seem there were any number of of moments of well, not human error, which which kind of saved us from all being a, a kind of a smoking shadow on the ground. Um, I'm curious to know what the the scenario is now in terms of how much the human decision and, or, and human involvement has been taken out in terms of artificial intelligence and so on and so on. Um, and are we now looking at the same thing, the same scenario and, and kind of hoping that like a microchip doesn't have an off day? I, I think, yeah, there is absolutely an element of that. I mean, we become more and more reliant in our everyday lives with technology. You know what it's like if you can't get a signal on your mobile, your whole world falls apart. Mm. Um, and the reliance on technology and artificial intelligence is uh, very frightening. And, and they were also the causes of some really close misses in terms of missile launches where a demo tape of a nuclear attack was loaded into the NORAD computer in the 1970s. And again, they thought there was an attack. The um, president's advisor was called in the middle of the night, got out of bed, and then about three minutes later, they realized it was a demo tape that had been um, incorrectly loaded. So I, th- I honestly believe that could e- that could happen now. Um, the only benefit, I guess, is there are less nuclear missiles now than there were at the height of the Cold War, but that's not really mm. a huge benefit overall. It's um, it's another thing that, that always always struck me that um, to, to my sort of basic knowledge of, of how how Reagan sort of kind of won the Cold War was he simply just outspent them out, outspent the Soviet Union. He just he just piled more and more money into it until they broadly couldn't keep up. And there were obviously other factors in terms of the changes in the Soviet Union towards the, the 1980s and the fall of the Berlin Wall and so on. Um, and he just kind of ground them into submission, which is sort of one way of winning it, I suppose. Um, I think that we, we, we're still at the point where you, you could sort of wipe out humanity about 150 times over or something ridiculous like that in terms of the stockpiles that are there. Um, I'm, I'm sort of amazed there's not been kind of a, a greater debate between the, the powers involved that it's really just time to sort of rein this back. I know that's a very, very simplistic, hippie, ideal view of the world, but it, it does strike me that there hasn't, there hasn't been some form of... Well, there's only one country, um, if you take the uh, countries that made up the former Soviet Union, who ended up with nuclear weapons when the Soviet Union disappeared, that actually got rid of nuclear weapons, and that was South Africa. They developed nuclear weapons during mm. the Cold War, and when the ANC came to uh, power, that whole program was – well, actually, it was before then, but the whole program was – um, removed, but I think that the the challenge is the proliferation of mm. nuclear weapons. You know, Israel has nuclear weapons. We know about North Korea, India, and Pakistan. China is a massive nuclear power, yet they weren't really involved in any of the treaty negotiations during the Cold War. And to mm. try and get them to relinquish nuclear weapons will will be a challenge. I mean, it, it sadly it's seen by some nations as a sign of masculinity. Mm. It's um, it's it's a debate I have very often with my um, with my dad down the pub, who who is you know he, he's read a lot on the subjects, he, he's sort of quite well informed. Um, but but my, my point to him always is is kind of we acknowledge 
in terms of the UK's deterrent, in inverted commas, we acknowledge that it's not a first strike capability. So if we're at the point where someone has to decide whether you press the button or not, you're broadly talking about slaughtering millions of people for for what reason? It's kind of if we've reached that yeah. point, it seems like there's there's literally no point to do anything more. Or also, Johnny didn't jump in. Mm. We, we've only got something like thirty warheads anyway, haven't we? Compared to tens of thousands on the Americans. And yeah, America. it's kind of a bit of a, a sort of a blot on the landscape. So it's it sort of I completely get the. It, it feels like it's one of those political questions that. Um, when when an election comes up, you you, you ask the standard question is asked: Would you press the button? And you know politicians have to appear tough, and you know it was Joe Swinson or whoever at the last election. Yes, of course I would, but no one actually ever asked the question. But have you thought about what that means? Yeah, and and it's an interesting one that because all the British, the captains of all the British nuclear submarines have what's known as a letter of last resort, which is written by the current prime minister and written by them alone. Nobody knows its contents, but it's the instructions to the nuclear submarine captain if they cannot make contact with the UK mm. as to what their action would be. Obviously, yeah. one, of those, one of those is to launch at whoever the adversary they believe it to be. One could be sail to a friendly nation and and work with them. And, you know, who, who, you know, and those are probably the, the most obvious options. But, you know, not knowing the contents of those, it'd be interesting that even the most bellicose prime minister may have written in that letter, don't fire. Remember those mm. folded things you used to make at school where you folded them up and you say, pick a colour, pick a number? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'd be brilliant if one of them put one of those in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it absolutely would. It would. No, it was really that was fascinating. Thank you, Ian. Well, no, thank you. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I've, I've, I've got a couple. I mean, firstly, a lot of the near misses and things seem to spend... I'm trying to be objective, but it's, it, Russia seems to suffer from a degree of paranoia, which I, I guess some of it is justified in that, you know, I think one of the things that they point to is the fact that we sent troops in the First World War um, to support one of the sides in the revolution that we thought that would benefit us. But is their paranoia justified? I think that the main direction of their paranoia is around what they would call the great patriotic war which is what we'd call world war Two, where more than 20 million of their population were killed by an invading army and that's a far greater driver than our interventions in um the uh russian civil war um you just got to watch their parades and they they still you know commemorate the great pot patriotic war in a massive fashion and are very proud of the fact that they defeated nazi germany obviously then, not alone they did have some help from us and then my, my final question i mean is it actually over for me it feels like it went away for a bit you know the threat level went down reduced but it, it doesn't feel like it's gone away at the moment i don't i don't think it has i mean there's a lot of sim similarities there i mean the, the russians do not have the the same size of conventional army that they did during the um the days of the cold war but then neither neither does nato the big difference nato is a lot closer to the soviet union and that is another area that's making them paranoid is that when the cold war was on they had this big buffer zone of the warsaw pact nations whereas we are you know we as nato are now right on their their borders and there's an element of of paranoia 
um, around that. And, you know, you've also got to look at Russia. Their economy is not in great shape. And the, the resort of a lot of governments when the economy is not in great shape is to, you know, start waving weapons around and and using that as all sorts of excuses as well. Um, but, um, I think Cold War 2.0, as it, as it's, as it's called, is still there. I mean, we're still intercepting Russian bombers over the North Sea as they approach the British coast. You know, we're still monitoring their Navy. So it still is there. I don't think to the degree of danger as there was in the, uh, the darkest days of the Cold War, though, thankfully. Thanks. Excellent. Well done, Ian. Uh, right, let's move on. I'm going to do Andrew next because Andrew's going to go with something completely different. What have you chosen as mankind's greatest achievement? Oh, God, sorry. Had a mouthful of tart, as it were. Right. Excellent. Um, <laughs> how, how, long have I, how long have I got? I think I was probably going to go longer than those two. Does that matter too much? Uh, no, if we get bored, we'll tell you to shut up. But okay. generally, we're quite accommodating. <laughs> Good. Um, right then. So... I'm arguing for something a bit more abstract, and I'm going to call it, although I know I'm being cheeky here and possibly calling into this lots of antecedents and other things. Maybe it's capitalism, maybe it's free markets, maybe it's trade, but I'm going to call it the modern economy. Because if we think about what is in history, we might think about events, dear boy, uh, events, uh, but also people. And I'm going to go a step further than that, though, and say it's possibly about the the sum total of lived human existence. And if we think about that, actually a massive chunk of that is happening right now. There's something like about 100 billion humans have ever lived, of which, you know, approaching 8 billion are currently alive. And crucially, this isn't anymore really, a, you know, a Malthusian existence of, of squalor and subsistence, although that, of course, is the case for like maybe a billion people. It's an existence of like prosperity and health, believe it or not, in these current times. So we've got to a stage where we can sustain a large chunk of the entirety of history in a way that has been unimaginable for most of that history. So I'm going to be slightly facetious, but if you look at history from a sort of an economist's perspective, you could argue that basically nothing happened. So we've seen recently in COVID a lot of, sort of exponential processes uh, play out. So let's think about some other ones. Um, if you look at a graph of world population through time or world GDP through time or uh, the two together, GDP per capita, you basically get a flat line until it starts to bend. So the flat line, religion, wars, great men and women, basically nothing moves that curve, whether you're in ancient Egypt or Tang Dynasty China or Tudor England, basically the median person is living pretty much the same life for most of history, plus or minus some different carbohydrates perhaps. So it's only the Industrial Revolution and the agricultural improvements that precede that that start to bend that curve. And it's only technology and its adoption and its output that makes a real difference. And of course that really starts to accelerate through the 19th century and really goes gangbusters during the 20th century um, and bring us to where we are now. And that position now is so astoundingly different from what it was. We've got, what, GDP of something like £30,000 per person in, in the UK. Ten times what our best guess is for 1800 or more than ten times. And in that world of the, like the Malthusian trap before that, higher productivity and economic uh, sort of uh, improvements generally translated into more people, but not more income. But we've got both. And... 
if it's 10 times for the UK, it's the world GDP is about 100 times what it was in 1820. And GDP per capita across the world is something like six or eight times what it was. So, so much of humanity is being sustained like here and now. So I'm claiming that sort of progress as part of this answer, but I'm also claiming that the economy itself, that I want to sort of look at it and think about its its wondrous complexity. So in history, we often look at sort of like individuals and economists might say that focusing on personalities might be about selecting on the dependent variable that we only care about the people because they happen to be successful and the people who might have had similar qualities who happen to die, uh, we don't look at and we forget them. And we end up in all sorts of counterfactuals and what ifs and so on. Um, but I think the beauty of this argument, and it's pretty much immune to some of those counterfactuals, because we can imagine perhaps a world in which someone like James Watt doesn't further develop the steam engine. We can imagine that world, but it's hard to imagine a world that doesn't go through that process with someone else contributing. Same goes for, say, electricity. Might have been on a different time scale, but we still get there eventually because it's all part of our understanding of physics and technology. So the big questions in this field are not so much what if X didn't happen, but how come it didn't happen earlier? How come China didn't have the Industrial Revolution? How come the Romans didn't have it when they just about sort of understood the steam engine? All roads might lead to Rome, but I'm saying all historical roads lead to, in terms of the things that matter for human well-being, roughly speaking, here. And my third little strand of the argument is that this is really a product of not individuals, but of humankind. And we might look at something other like the moon landings that were sort of briefly mentioned or going down the Marianas Trench or something and think about the organized collective action that, that produced those achievements. But we sort of exist as elements of, a, of the most complex system, far more complex than all of those, uh, ever not devised because it just sort of happens we can go down to the shop even in these difficult times and choose from a massive array of products of fresh produce of manufactured goods of chemicals and we've seen an economy which is actually surprisingly resilient yes there's been huge amounts of uh, economic downturn and, and unemployment in the last couple of months but it's the shops still can sell us things from across the world in a really sophisticated and surprising way and the key thing is that nobody is responsible for that invention, creation, manufacture and distribution of those goods. It just almost magically happens. It's what we call emergent order. Out of the chaos of individual action comes all this prosperity and plenitude. And there's a bit of a hoary old chestnut in economics called an, an essay called I Pencil, dates from the 50s by a guy called Leonard Reed, that is like told from the point of view of an anthropological, um, um, anthropomorphic pencil, talking about how it... Nobody knows how to make them. Nobody can actually produce a pencil. You might better put it together, but could you have mined the graphite? Could you have grown the tree? Could you have chopped down the tree with the tools that requires? Could you have found the rubber? And so on and so on. And even if you could, could you do it as high quality and as cheaply as the pencil I could have bought in Tesco's yesterday? And to keep with the Cold War thing that Ian said, just to finish, there's a famous story possibly apocryphal, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, where a, a, an official comes over to the UK to sort of work out what's going to happen next, how are we going to transition to the market economy? And he asked a question along the lines of, who, who is in charge of the bread supply in London? And he gets the answer, nobody, because it just happens. 
And so that's why I'm submitting that the modern capitalist, technologically driven economy as mankind's greatest achievement, because it's although it's not perfect, it is enabling a better life than our ancestors for more people. But crucially, it's not any one person's doing. It fits this debate because it is humankind's greatest achievement by emerging from our sort of collective action. My mind is just absolutely blown. It might have something to do with the gin already or that I'm just not capable of retaining this kind of information. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, a few. What, when we talk about the, the modern economy, what time period are we talking about? Obviously, you, you mentioned the Industrial Revolution. Is it from then up to the current day? Uh, well, <clears throat> yeah, I, arguably, but I suppose the you'd probably have to factor in. I, I guess in my mind, I had more, I suppose, my lifetime, I guess, the sort of the, the end of the 20th century, a, a highly globalised. That's where we really get, there's a, there's a big period of globalisation in the, beginning of the 20th century or, or just before that. Um, but, and of course, trade and globalization has existed from time immemorial, of course, with the Silk Roads and so on. But the sort of hyper-globalization that we've got that I'm talking to through a laptop that was made by in huge numbers of com- countries and put together and shipped halfway across the world. Um, I'm sort of, I guess I'm sort of thinking about sort of the 80s onwards, I guess. Because that's interesting because, you know, I, I mean, I would argue that... I think in terms of that cut-off point, I think it was probably better for most people. Well, well, I can only speak for my own middle-class experiences. But I would go, for my parents' generation, it was probably better for them than it is for me now. I've got concerns whether it would be better for my son. And it was interesting that you said nobody controls it, which I think that was true up to a point. But, you know, these days, uh, Wall Street and, and, and the, uh, F, uh, the stock exchange are really big influences. And I think that's where we see this insatiable drive for growth now, which I don't think is a great thing because, you know, you can make 20% profits one year and then that's not good enough. You've got to make 21% the year after, which I think that is taking us down a path where it is ultimately unsustainable. Whereas I think if you look back to the sort of possibly 60s, 70s and 80s, um, you had a mixture. It was a bit sort of like France is now to a certain degree where you had a capitalist economy and the main and, and part of the economy was also run by the state. I think the other issue that we see now, which also leads into the stock exchange problem, is that you have a lot of dividends are paid out of company profits now. I think it's increased, what is it, 100, 200, 300% over what it was in the 70s. And that's broadly taking an awful lot of money out of the economy. Um, Ultimately, some people at the top, those with pensions, will get a benefit from that as well. But I think it's almost gone too far at the moment. I think that those those critiques are fair, but I think they're, they're not necessarily actually critiques of what I, I was sort of claiming exactly. So, so first of all, the the, the quality of the standard of life for the, the medium person uh, was was worse in the seventies, um, pretty much on any any measure. Because in fact, if we we have great difficulty in doing this the stats, but one of the issues that ha- makes it really difficult, especially the further back in time you go to like adjust for inflation, is that the basket of goods. Uh, is different, and so if, I think I think if you ask someone from from the sixties, fifties, sixties, seventies, would you would you mind your your son and daughter living in in twenty twenty? They've got all these things, but there's a bit more inequality, and um, you know their position in society might not be as sort of secure, maybe. But look at all the stuff they've got. I'm I'm not really confident they they might say that. And then on the dividends and that, yeah. Absolutely. But then 
go to Scandinavia, for example, um, and and the thing that I was arguing for, the sort of the emergent order of providing all the things that we have in our life still exists there. But yes, absolutely, with possibly arguably a better form of capitalism. I mean, I think just on the, I mean, I, I come from a, a fairly middle middle class background, and but what strikes me, you know, when we when I was growing up, my mother didn't work, none of my friends' mums worked, and my life now isn't that different to what my parents' life was, you know, when I was growing up. Yeah, we need, you know, both me and my wife need to work, and I think that's the same for you know most people these days. Yeah, that's that's, that's also a good point, and um, I, I originally. Um, replied on Twitter to Alex when the topic was going to be like which century was was most important and and the point you raised there was actually part of my reasoning for saying the uh, the 19th because arguably the, the world of 1900 is not all that far away from the world of 2020 compared with the, the world of 1800 compared with 1680 or something um, uh, because of the sort of things you mean that 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 our life is much the same with sort of transport and housing and incipient electronics and so on. So, um, yeah, you're sort of right. That may, maybe progress has stalled in many ways. And a lot of the progress we've had recently is just more exciting ways to consume media and it's not really substantial. And it does indeed require perhaps more to earn a household. So true. Yeah. Take that on board. Okay. Thanks. N- nothing more for me. Johnny. Um, yeah, it's a very curious subject and one that's probably too large to deal with in kind of just one evening. Um, I think I was right in terms of, and I broadly agree with your premise in terms of the advances it's made and what it has given society in general um, over the last, I mean, certainly in my lifetime, things have improved immeasurably. Um, but there, there's sort of a danger that, that it's going to eat itself, or it is already eating itself um, in terms of the, the standard sort of kind of supply-side economics um, model that was sort of prevalent in the 80s and still seems quite prevalent now um, when all its inherent flaws are actually quite obvious. Um, I, I kind of look at the last... Yeah, the last 15 years in, in this country and broadly speaking, the, the markets fail, um, in any number of ways. Um, they, they failed in terms of the financial crisis in 2008. Um, they certainly can't cope with a virus. Um, I'm just wondering if it's, it's, it's brought us to a certain point, but actually there isn't maybe another way forward. And actually, oddly, I've, I've just not. Well, I hear North Korea is lovely at this time of year. <laughs> well, no, I, 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 but, but to suggest, but to suggest, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about some kind of return to, you know, we'll, we'll go and live on farms is, is, is not what I'm saying. Um, I, just out of interest, I, I just finished. Have you read Donut Economics? Uh, I haven't actually yet. No, um, it's, it's yeah, an intriguing. I'm well aware of it. Yeah. It's an intriguing book just in the sense that um, the basic premise of it is rather than having your sort of standard growth graph, which just goes up and up and up and up and up. The, the argument is, well, actually, how can, how can you do that when ultimately you, you only have a finite number of, you only have a finite yeah, number of resources? I've got, I've got sort of two responses to that. In the, in the, first of all, the, the finite resources is, is slightly a myth. It's finite physical resources, sure, but the, the almost unboundless uh, innovation and product of our, our labour. But two things that occur to me with what you said there is that, um, the 
the sustainability argument, look at look at the Netherlands versus Bangladesh, say. Both low-lying countries are at risk of flooding, but it's only the Netherlands who, with great efforts and expenditure of their richness, able uh, are able after 1953 and that famous flood to to put up massive uh, flood defences to to protect themselves so it's from prosperity that you can actually deal with a lot of the problems but secondly um the if if we if we enact some of the things that, that most economists would agree with about those problems uh say we had a sort of i don't know a, a global carbon tax or whatever it would still be worked through that same system we could we could hopefully adjust some of the sort of parameters and that system would come out with new ways of of not using as much stuff if we could if we can adjust it appropriately and that, that's controversial amongst economists and austrian economists and hayek mm. would disagree but um but so I'd say that even, even if we go move to a, a Kate Walworth type uh, system, um, it will still mostly be enacted by by the market system governing those interactions between people. I mean, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how it pans out because I think Amsterdam just just announced the way that they're aiming to get out of um, the, the COVID nineteen mess is is to 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 do exactly that to adopt to adopt the donut. Um, which so in terms of how the how the Dutch dealt with the, dealt with their flooding issue, um, maybe yes they 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 were smart and um, and slightly ahead of their time and were able to direct their resources as such to um, to help them out. But it's uh, it's intriguing that um, the capital is is now possibly looking at a different model. Yeah. Wow. Um- I'm glad you two kind of knew what was going on there because I absolutely 100% (laughs) didn't. You know, we've gone so highbrow. I think we should all go and get a drink. (laughs) Okay, so we're back from our refilling our glasses. Um, Just in case any of you were totally terrified of Andrew now because he sounds so clever, frankly, I was. Uh, What was your backup again if you weren't going to argue for the modern economy? Uh, Burgundian expressions of Pinot Noir. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, uh, I'm going to go something far more arts-based for our next one so that my tiny little brain can comprehend it. Emma, what have you chosen and why? I have chosen the most artistic thing in the world and also the most kind of ancient and global. Uh, everything's been a bit Western so far. So um, I've gone with the concept of writing which is the most important thing that mankind ever did. Um, and I know it is because two other people in this pub tried to do it and I got there first. <laughs> um, which means they already agree with me. So you should just shut this down and let me win. Um, but writing changes everything. It emerges independently all across the world on almost every continent, except Europe, really, um, because we stole it from the um, Egyptians, basically, who nicked it a bit from the Sumerians. But the oldest writing in the world, the first thing that considered to be kind of proto-writing, emerges about 35,000 BCE with the first narratives painted onto the walls of a French cave. Um, And then over time that became pictograms which became logograms and I'm not going to do the science bit but you know what I mean um and when 
the people of the city of Uruk in Suma in like 3500, 4000 BC um, decided that they had, interestingly enough, they invented it because of trade. Um, they needed to keep tabs on how many sheep and beer barrels almost all of the earliest things which we consider to be proper writing not proto writing are receipts for beer um people needed to keep track of how many barrels of beer and sheep and cows they were sending from one place to another um and so they started getting clay tablets and making markings which represented sheep which were not a drawing of a sheep which were not uh uh representation of a sheep in any way but we were a little symbol which sound looked like it sounded like sheep um and sent it backwards and forwards and as that became more and more common they started keeping them for tax records and they became more and more abstract and gradually that became a language which was the same written down as it was spoken and then abstract ideas could be conveyed from one person to another person without having to actually speak to that person and that changes the whole world because in that point to quote the wonderful novelist Sarah Perry I can make my daydreams your daydreams as well just with a marking on a page I can change how you feel about the world and how you feel about everything without even ever talking to you um I can make you think about abstract ideas of God and weather and economies and everything none of that can exist without writing it down um and being able to communicate those ideas through the technology of writing creates an idea of objectivity for the first time. It means I don't have to trust what you say because there is something which can back you up or not back you up. If I say that you say that you were sent with 10 barrels of beer, but you have a piece of paper that says that you were sent with 12, then you have an objective reality which countermands your subjective reality and that completely creates a different reality that did not exist without writing without that creation and maintenance of, of information outside of each other's heads in a physical format in a technological format um then you can't have cultures and trade networks and empires and economies and you can't go under the sea and you can't go into space and you can't have decent beer because everyone has to invent it for themselves you can't have anything that we have without writing wow <laughs> pretty comprehensive uh <laughs> she's smart because she's like i might win this week uh johnny any questions <laughs> um I, I yeah another I, another sort of enormous concept which is sort of quite difficult to get your head around the um the whole yeah, I thing think in, if you um, boil it down it is at its very base a technology it is putting marks on a piece of paper um and so it mm. is basically it's a technology that not one person came up with that hundreds of people came up with individually and eventually the people of the city of uruk kind of really took to it because they really wanted to keep tabs on that beer um but stop mentioning beer they're not going to vote for you because you keep <laughs> mentioning beer you're going to be outdone on that front <laughs> beer and sheep. um but um and so the writer Ted Chang, who I really like, who wrote an amazing story called The Truth of Track Fact, The Truth of Feeling, which I really recommend to everybody about um, how writing changes everything as a technology, basically, um, through the lens of thinking about um, an imaginary technology whereby we can record all of our memories um, and 
he says that um, writing by making an external reality made us all into um, cognitive cyborgs because now we think through I don't know about you but I think through writing I can't really don't really think without writing something down um, and it changes the shape of your brain and changes the shape of the world yeah I mean it's I suppose it, in, in its simplest form it, it's, it's kind of the, the world's first open source project <laughs> In terms of the fact it was developed by lots of different people, no one owned a, a particular right over any of it. Um, but it was it just it just came about. And I, I, I can you imagine no if started now? There'd be all sorts of arguments over font licenses for the very first A or something. Yeah, it'd be like they people have invent like computer languages now, and some of them are. Um, yeah. open source and some of them aren't and blah 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 and it's always a nightmare and everyone's always shouting at each other yeah I d- what's the first kind of recorded piece of writing that is this recognized as as where it started i know it's a very open question it's a recipe for beer it, uh, they are beer uh, and beer receipts and things like um accounts for how many sheep a person has they are um uh, sumerian clay tablets um, it wasn't the first earliest untapped, was it, Johnny? The first <laughs> <laughs> I have actually drunk um, earlier this week. I, I did a thing. We I did a podcast about the history of beer, and I have drunk um, Sumerian beer from a recipe, and it's absolutely horrible. Um, but yeah, the earliest um, are Sumerian clay tablets, and they just have kind of marks. They would use a, a kind of pointed stylus and put marks in at different angles. Um, and as accounting, so it was accounting of the earliest writing, um, and then it gradually gets more complicated. And then the earliest named piece of writing, like a person who wrote a thing that is for a purpose other than accounting, is a um, uh, priestess, uh, a, a Sumerian priestess called um, en, Enheduanna, Enheduanna, something like that. And she wrote a load of hymns to um, a goddess. Um, that go on for a while, to be honest, and are hymning. <laughs> um, but they are the earliest thing that um, that is considered to be like a piece of of not fiction, but you, like non business based writing. Okay, no, it's excellent. Thank you, Holmes. Not a question as such, but when I was looking into this, I, I was intrigued to see that in hieroglyphics, they used a goose to indicate a child because they thought that, that geese at that time were special. And so <laughs> as their children were special as well, they thought, I'll use a goose to indicate a child. But why not just draw a child? <laughs> that's easier than drawing a goose. <laughs> they like geese better. Well, also, I, I'm really shit at drawing as well. And so <laughs> know, is that a wren? A swan, is it a swan? What's that supposed to indicate? That's just the same as me having bad handwriting, the handwriting of a doctor. Maybe maybe we should go back to symbols then, because I think the bull symbol in hieroglyphics is the letter A, it mutated by the Middle Eastern. So I'm thinking about doing a really flamboyant new signature with a bull (laughs) at the right of the star. You see, and you can express yourself with that uh, without even having to be good at drawing. So it's better than drawing. It could be. But if I then did the other characters in my name and my surname, it would take ages. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope, no, I haven't got any more questions. Okay. Um, I, I fear 
as amazing as that argument was, Emma, that it's all anything anyone has mm-hmm. said is about to go flying out of the window because Pete Brown is here. Having been invited onto this because of my uh, specialism, I would love to cite you all out and say algebra. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm going I'm, I'm to say beer. Sold. We can all go home now because they're going to pick you up. Well, I'll, 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 fill a, I'll fill a bit more time. Um, I mean, I, I never set out to be a, a, a beer historian, and it was one of those things that the more you find out about it, the more your, your, the lower your jaw drops to the floor. Um, and, and having kind of done the subject in the round now, um, I think the thing about it is that it's, uh, I, I love it for so many different reasons from so many different facets. And, uh, the first one is it's, a, it's an absolute triumph of the human spirit. If we were to dis- to discover uh, a new uh, continent in the middle of the Pacific tomorrow that had somehow been hidden from us, whatever plants grew on that continent, the people living there would have somehow worked out how to ferment the sugars in those plants into alcohol. This is something that's happened every single place that humans have settled across the entire planet, uh, that, 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 we, that we take naturally occurring sugars and, and turn them into alcohol without having any idea whatsoever as to how and why it happened until the last 200 years. We've been doing this for at least 10,000 years without the knowledge of, of why it happens and what, and what it is and, and what alcohol is and what yeast is and how fermentation happens. We, we've managed to do it anyway. Um, and, and because of that, you know, and, and the feeling that intoxication gives you, we, we, we talk about intoxication today as if it's a bad thing. And it's really, really not. You know, it's, it's something that lowers your social inhibitions. It's something that, uh, that, that frees you up, that liberates you. And, and for a lot of history, we've, we've assumed that it's a religious thing. We've assumed that it's a, that it's a, a power, a, a, a kind of religious magic that, that brings you closer to whatever God you worship, which is why alcohol is at the center of, um, you know, Jesus's first miracle, turning water into wine. Uh, actually, there's some dispute about that because the, the word in the original Hebrew text is shekar. Uh, shekar did not refer to wine. Uh, shekar referred to strong liquor. Uh, and there's a different word in, in Hebrew for wine. And that wasn't the word that was used. So it's actually more likely that Jesus turned water into beer, uh, than, than into wine. Um, but the, but the, the, the gospels were written in a, in a Roman centric time, uh, and the Italians drink wine. So they, they politicized it and, and turned it into, into wine when it should have been beer. Um, going back further from that, there's a very strong argument that beer is the root cause of civilization itself. Uh, if you, um, want to make wine, if you think about kind of humanity used to enjoy a nomadic existence, uh, moving around on, on horseback and that kind of thing. Um, if you were to pick grapes and put them in a, in a leather or, or a, you know, pigskin, uh, satchel or something like that, uh, and you've got that kind of by your side, the action of, uh, movement would break those grapes down. The, the yeasts on the, on the grape skins would start to ferment the juice and you would get wine. Wine happens, uh, where, where fruit breaks down. Uh, I, I love wine. I'm not going to have, have a go at wine. Um, but it's a very easy thing to make. In order to make beer, you actually have to, uh, have agriculture. Uh, you have to settle down and grow crops. And not only that, you have to then have maltings, uh, because it's much harder to convert the sugars from grain 
uh, into fermentable sugars than it is um, from from fruit. So you need flat floors, you need permanent structures. So the, uh, there's a strong theory that we, we settled down into stable communities, into towns and cities in order to brew beer. It was either to brew beer or to make bread. And there's a lot of argument that says that they came from the same place and probably beer came earlier, the, earlier than bread. So, so beer is the root cause of civilization. And I think I've proven that. Um, since then, uh, beer has kept us alive. Um, for a lot of human existence, water wasn't safe. It was, uh, it carried diseases. We only found out very recently, uh, that things like cholera were transmitted by water. Beer is boiled, uh, water, the water in beer is boiled during its production. Uh, and hops are a preservative and a, and a disinfectant. So it was safe to drink, uh, beer than to drink water. And because it was so important to us, beer actually drove the industrial, uh, revolution that we heard about earlier. Um, beer was, uh, a pioneer of everything from steam power to, uh, microbiology. Uh, you know, we, we think now of Louis Pasteur and the, the immense things that we, we know about microbes, bacteria, um, and, 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 and things like that and, and, and technology that's been used to kind of save countless millions of lives started off with, uh, Pasteur's exploration of how to, uh, stop spoilage in, in wine and, and then in beer. Uh, we heard about writing, uh, the first recipe, uh, the, the first one of those hymns, the, the Hinton in Cars, it was a recipe for beer, a recipe for brewing. Um, and then as we come forward through the industrial revolution, beer won the second world war, uh, Churchill, uh, never rationed beer. Uh, he, uh, uh, he said that every man fighting at the front uh, had to have his ration of uh, four pints a week. Uh, pubs stayed open at home, uh, and pubs were largely credited with with the, the kind of fabled blitz spirit. Um, I, I've seen photographs of um, uh, bombed out pubs where someone's put uh, a plank across two barrels of beer and they've opened for business selling selling bottles that they salvaged from the cellar and as long as the pubs were still open uh, we hadn't been defeated by the Blitz uh, there are also photos just after D-Day of Spitfires flying barrels of beer from Mitchell and Butler under their wings and landing uh, in northern France uh, to deliver beer to the troops who've just, uh, who've just liberated Normandy um, and you come forward from that. I, I, I think um, we're talking about something that predates uh, the modern economy, something that predates our, our kind of development of nuclear weapons, that predates written language. In fact, I would argue that written language emerged as, as a way, like civilization did, uh, as a way of recording brewing. And it's still as relevant to us now as it was then. It's still the thing that, that gathers us around. It's a global thing. I, I toured the world looking at beer culture and found that we might drink different styles of beer. We might drink, you know, some people drink, the Spanish drinking like 25 mil canyas, uh, the Germans drinking liter steins. But that moment when you clink glasses together uh, or bottles together and you look at each other and toast each other is a universal moment. And it's a timeless moment that, that goes back throughout the entire history of civilization. And I'll, I'll just finish by referring to... Uh, uh, a summit that happened in 2009 at the White House, I don't know if you remember, but um, there was a situation just after Obama had been elected where uh, a white policeman arrested a black guy for breaking into a fairly affluent house. It turned out the black guy was a professor at Harvard and it was his own house, he'd just lost his keys. And so this had all the uh, potential to turn into kind of a racial uh, conflagration in, in American politics. And so Obama invited this white cop and this black professor to the White House 
to sit down over a beer. It was, it, it was called the Beer Summit. And, um, and the idea was, I think, that uh, if you sit down over a beer, then we're all equals. We're not the President of the United States, uh, a white cop and a black professor, with three guys sitting and having a beer. And beer has that potential to diffuse any situation, uh, to level us all. It's a democratic beverage. Uh, it's an accessible beverage. And, it, and it's one that just kind of keeps going. It, it affects us in, in, in social ways, in economic ways, uh, in cultural ways. Uh, and that curve of intoxication that you get from beer is slower and gentler than the intoxication you get from other alcoholic drinks, um, which makes for much more uh, pleasurable drinking. So, uh, so it's beer, basically. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Okay, that's pretty fair. Um, I just feel the rest of us are completely wasting our time now. Uh, Holmes, any questions? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I could have listened to that for another half hour, to be honest. But in it, <laughs> trying to be objective, I'm going to ask a couple of negative questions just for balance. And the first one, Pete, you mentioned that war, the beer helped us win the Second World War, but it wasn't the case in the First World War, was it? In fact, arguably, the effects of beer cost British soldiers' lives in the early part of the First World War. Uh, I will, I will take that definitely. Um, but I will argue that beer gets used as a scapegoat when, when the effects of alcohol, uh, have a detrimental impact on society. I think beer gets used as a scapegoat. Um, people were drinking heavily. The thing you're referring to is when, you know, the, the, the first world war was a, uh, it, it was, it was a, an accounting war more than anything. It was, <clears throat> it was basically about who, ran, who was going to run out of bullets first would, would lose the war. And munitions factories, um, in the UK for a time were not doing that well, uh, because people were turning up to work pissed or hungover or not turning up at all. And so we nearly had prohibition in the UK around that time in order to kind of ensure the, the, the supply of ammunition to the front. Um, but, you know, it wasn't, I would argue that in situations like this, and it's the same today, whenever there's a negative story in the press about alcohol, which you see an awful lot, um, it's always illustrated by a picture of someone drinking a pint of real ale. And, and beer tends not to be the drink that people use when they're abusing alcohol. You know, it, take, it takes some time and effort. I'm not, I'm not saying this exclusively, but it does take some time and effort to get really, really drunk on beer on a consistent basis. People obviously do, but if what you want to do is get out of your head and just seek oblivion, you you go into spirits rather than beer. And I, I think beer acts as a 
a, a scapegoat um, for a lot of the negative effects of alcohol more broadly. I think that's fair enough. And I think in, in, if we go back to the First World War thing, I think they brought three measures in to try and combat hungover shell, shell makers. But beer was the only one whose alcohol content was reduced, wasn't it? Yeah. So you, you get some really different responses from different nations. So what we saw here was um, a reduction in alcohol from, I think, about 50 years previously, the average pint of beer was probably about 6 or 7% ABV. And by the end of the First World War, it was somewhere around 2% ABV. And and that was seen in the end, although Lloyd George did want to introduce full-scale prohibition, um, it was that was seen as a better measure because um, after the Russian Revolution in 1917, what they did there was they banned vodka to to help the war effort. And that was credited as being one of the one of the kind of flashpoints of the revolution. So Lloyd George was eventually convinced that uh, he couldn't ban beer uh, because that would kind of be catastrophic. So instead, they, they lowered the volume of it. And, you know, beer is a product of four different ingredients that interact in a different way. And, and it was much easier to lower the strength of beer to create a beverage that people will find satisfying, uh, but but not get too drunk on than it would be to say, do that with spirits or, or wine. Okay, and then my last question is that one of the earliest beers was made of grain and fermented spit. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite right, but it's pretty close. Um, so, so the, um, the the problem with trying to ferment an alcoholic drink out of grain is that in, in, in grape, grapes, fruit, fruit wants to be eaten <clears throat> because when mammals eat fruit, they carry the seeds and they excrete them. Uh, at, a, at a distance away from the uh, from the parent tree or bush or, or whatever, um, grain doesn't need that. Grain is light; it gets blown by the wind. Grain is designed not to be um, eaten. It doesn't want to be eaten. It's like it's like the the water carrier, the, the lorry carrying water on Mad Max. <coughs> Excuse me. It puts all these, all these defenders, and, it, and it, you need to activate enzymes to, to convert the starches in grain to sugar. And so one way of doing that is the enzymes in spit. If you chew a mouthful of grain for a really, really long time, you will activate the enzymes in the grain that will then convert the starches into sugars uh, so that yeast can then ferment them. But it's a really, really dull, horrible thing. There's a brook called Dogfish Head who tried to recreate uh, this kind of chicha beer from Central America where they use that. And after about five hours they just went you know what this is horrible let's just stop <laughs> it sounds like carling to me but there we go <laughs> <laughs> Not, nothing further from me thanks johnny um yeah so thank you Peter. that was fascinating um i i i'm intrigued by um the, the whole business of alcohol it has just maybe missed the pub even more actually to aside of anything else um Given how long it's been around for, um, and I'm thinking specifically British society here, um, we still have a very uneasy relationship with it, do you think? I, I think that's absolutely right. I've, I've just been writing this week about um, uh, the quite widespread media uh, stories about how we're all boozing ourselves to death under lockdown. And, and all those stories are based on figures from uh, the off-trade, from the supermarkets and off-licenses, and completely ignore the fact that pubs, restaurants and bars have ceased to exist. Um, mm. But, you know, a, a, a negative scare story about alcohol is a, is, a, is a good story. 
And um, yeah. I mean, we, we do have an uneasy relationship with it. And I, I think what, what I, something I came up with a few years ago was to, you know, when there's a negative story about booze, uh, if, if someone, and I'm not denying that it has detrimental effects for some people, uh, I've, I've, I've lived with alcoholics. I, I, I know the damage it does. Um, but, but when it's, when, when something is bad happens as a result, as a result of drinking, we blame the drink. Uh, not, we don't look at the, the, the factors behind it that, that caused someone to turn to drink. You know, no one wakes up in the morning and says, Hey, do you know what? I think I'd like to be an alcoholic. I think I'd like to ruin my life by drinking too much. There's always some factor that, that causes it. Mm. And, and I compare it with, with fire. You know, if someone's house burns down, uh, and, and children die in a house fire. We don't say, all right, we need to ban fire. We need, we need to ban, um, heaters. We need to, we need to, we need to ban radiators or whatever it is that causes the fire. We say we need to be much more careful around this. We need to be much more careful around how we, how we treat it. We need to put precautions in place. Uh, and if we applied that to alcohol, I'm absolutely for that. You know, we, we should be careful around it. It's, it's a volatile genie. Uh, it brings huge pleasure. Uh, it brings huge benefits to society, but but yeah, you, you you definitely have to be careful around it and make sure that you don't misuse it. Yeah, do you? I mean, do you think the way that it, it's always struck me that the way that we're introduced to it as as society, when you know, it was always the big thing. It's kind of well, you know, when you're eighteen, you can go to the pub and have a pint, and pubs were generally sort of fairly dark and you know places where it, it seemed kind of quite furtive, and it just became this sort of big thing and a, a, a real rite of passage which I, I suspect had it been been kind of less of an event and less of a thing I probably wouldn't have been as bothered about it I think it works both ways and I, I don't think we understand that fully um, it's interesting in the states I have this great paper that says you know, because alcohol regulation in the states is determined by the state you can go across the United States and you can find states where bars have to have um, windows that are covered over because if people see in and see people boozing, that's going to encourage more of us to drink more. And then you have other states where windows are mandated to be open so that you can see into the bar because uh, that means that people can't hide and get up to licentious behaviour because they can be seen from the street. Now, both of those <laughs> positions are part wrong and part right, you know. Um, and, and I think that the thing about drinking in pubs and bars is that it's regulated it's a regulated environment that has customs uh and protocol uh and and ritual and one of the favorite stories i ever heard to the extent that by the time within a few years i'm going to start believing this happened to me it, it didn't it was a story i heard in an advertising focus group um but it was a guy talking about how in a pub uh there was a a, a lino section in front of the bar and then there's a little step up and there was a carpeted section and if you were a 17 year old wet behind the ears guy trying to get served, there was this general understanding that you stood on the lino and then, uh, the older drinkers were stood upstairs on the carpet. And this guy was talking about how he was in there with his mates and one of his uncles or his neighbors or somebody, uh, beckoned him over to the carpet to ask him a question about the, the football result and then said, right, now you're here, you might as well stay. Do you want a pint? And his graduation from the lino to the carpet <laughs> was this kind of rite of passage and there's all these little customs everywhere around the world of pubs where it's like you're, you're being watched you're being regulated and if you if you if you take the piss if you misbehave you you will get thrown out i think, and I it, think as well that the difference 
you know, compared to when I first started drinking, I mean, Johnny and I go to Belgium quite a lot, and um, it's noticeable when you go out in Belgium to most places that the demographic in there is from, you know, age 17, 18, right up to 60, 70, and men and women in most venues. I don't know if that sort of just has a calming measure, whereas most city centres in the UK, you know, after 6, 7 o'clock, 7pm on a Saturday, it's mainly the sort of uh, environment of young younger people, so to speak. Mm. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. Uh, you, you see similar things in Ireland as well. Um, I was over in Dublin St. Patrick's Day once, and there was some young guy in a in a t-shirt sitting next to a, an ancient guy in a flat cap, just having a really serious conversation. And and they were both drunk, but they were drunk in the best possible way. Um, and and I, I think there's a regimentation to our drinking, which again doesn't have anything to do with the availability of alcohol, but um, uh, it's it's about the kind of codes and the, and the customs we've put up around it. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you, Pete. That's wonderful. Oh, I'm going to have to break this up um, because otherwise they will go on forever because <laughs> um, they are slightly in love with you, Pete. Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to go to Alina next because I'm just going to get it over with because I don't think she's done anything to get ready. Alina? No, I've done no work because I have been prepping for other podcasts. So people have to make a decision here. Either I can make a really great argument and not prepare for podcasts or I can prepare for podcasts and make a shitty argument. And so give, it us your, give us your shitty, funny argument then. What have you gone for as the uh, crowning achievement right. for man and womankind? Imagine your lives, people. Okay. Imagine your lives. I'm going to name some things and you tell me if you can live without them. Right? You ready? Cars, trains, prams, planes, bikes, suitcases, unicycles, ferris wheels, toy cars, motorcycles, rollerblades, tractors, lawnmowers. That's for guy walters. Wheelchairs, buses, <laughs> carts, roller coasters and the water wheel. Are you going for the wheel? Is it the wheel? (laughs) I'm going for the wheel, okay? Imagine I can't live my life without my motorcycle or my car. So the wheel is clearly the most amazing thing to have ever been created. And it was created by the, God knows how to pronounce this, maybe Emma's going to help me, the whatever. Yeah. <laughs> pre-Iranian civilization that falls into the late Neolithic period. And that's probably as far as my prehistory goes. I'm really sorry, Tim. I hate prehistory and I suck at it. But that's as far as it goes. So yes, can you live without the wheel? No, you cannot live without the wheel. It is the most amazing thing ever created by man. And my motorcycle. <laughs> Holmes, any questions? Not, not really, but an observation is that obviously... Beer led to the development of barrels. So if we didn't have wheels, we could have just waited a few hundred thousand years and we're a few hundred or thousand years and we'd have to just roll around on barrels like sea lions start things anyway. Um, I, I, for the, for the nth consecutive week, a leader has just blown me away. <laughs> 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 Oh, come on, it's not bad for someone who did work for about 60 seconds, right? Yeah, she, she has actually, she left the pub to go and record another podcast because that's just what our lives are now. So well done for at least coming up with something. Let's move on to Rebecca, who wanted to do writing. She was one of the people that got beaten by Emma, who just went soaring in there and claimed it for herself. Rebecca, what have you gone for? Okay, right. Well, I wanted to... um 
start mine with the theme tune to The Apprentice um, because that's a classical... <laughs> but I, I couldn't find it. My internet's not working. That's a classical piece of music um, that falls onto a, under a huge bracket. So, yes, I did want Emma's writing, but actually what I wanted was literature. And then I realised that literature is just one part of the arts. So I'm going for the arts, um, which Tell us covers what the arts have done for mankind. Okay, so it covers literature. So all of the good stuff that Emma said include that in my argument, but mine's even more. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so literature, actual, you know, paintings, that kind of art, music, theatre, dance, architecture, um, the first examples of art are from 70,000 BCE. The, um, the first examples of music, or the use of music anyway, is a flute dating from 40,000 BCE. So basically, as part of the arts, what we're looking at is all applications of the human imagination, all expressions of creative, creative, creativity throughout history, everywhere, ever. And unlike all the other nominations for mankind or womankind's greatest achievement, this isn't limited to Homo sapiens. We can also include Neanderthal in this as well. So there are examples of them creating jewellery and art that have been found. So if we go to theatre and performance, imagine the world without, you know, without Macbeth, the plays of Shakespeare, Greek tragedies. And obviously, I know with this show um you are big fans of band of brothers so imagine the world without band of brothers or sharp mention or the pet shop boys then Holmes will vote <laughs> me well i will i will um so writing imagine the world without the iliad without norse mythology war and peace arabian nights john donne to kill a mockingbird wolf hall even art we've got as i mentioned cave paintings da vinci van gogh frida carlo andy warhol Gentileschi, sculpture, the great sphinx in Egypt, Michelangelo's David, any piece of sculpture you can think of. Imagine a world without that. Then imagine it also without the Parthenon, the Taj Mahal, St. Paul's Cathedral, any building anywhere that looks creative and isn't a 1960s kind of boxy number. Um, music, the oldest piece of music that we know, that we know of, um, was composed 4,000 years ago. And that was recently found in modern day Iraq. So imagine the world without, you know, Beethoven, Beyonce. Then we move on to dance. Imagine the world without the waltz or martial arts even. Um, without, you know, after you've had some beers, beers are a great idea. But what do we enjoy doing when we have beers? It's having a dance. So imagine that, you know, not being able to do that. Then if you like video games, imagine, you know, not being able to play them. Also the pet shop boys. All <laughs> um, so oh, the pet shop boys having a beer. Well, Pet Shop Boys having a beer, maybe, but it's, you know, it's the artistic side of them that we're interested in. So my argument is that the arts are what makes us human. There's a kind of alchemy to creativity. And when it finds expression, it's as close as we can get to magic. So it can change your mood. It can make you cry. It can make you laugh. It can make you aspire to do different things. And the people that create these things, whether that be a podcast like we're doing right now, um, it gives an immortality to what would normally just be mortal. So our words, our sounds, our paintings, they can live for much longer than we do. And I think aside from nature, it's the only thing that can really change the human mood. And without the arts, we'd just be 
frustrated kind of droids or robots. Um, so it's not just, it's not a technology. So it's not just writing. Um, it's not just sustenance like beer. It's very essence of what it means to be human. Um, and without it, what are we? That's my argument. Oh, Emma's sitting there thinking, shit. <laughs> I'm thinking we're basically on the same wavelength and, you know, me and Becca, like mm. two teams in a pod. Um, You're Rebecca. setting this up so that you can claim victory if Rebecca wins as well, aren't you? I mean, I'm claiming victory if beer wins as well. So uh, <laughs> if anyway, on the basis anyway. that, you know, we... <laughs> Writing, beer, all linked together. Everyone's building off of my argument. (laughs) (laughs) Holmes, any questions? I'm struggling to think any, actually. It was a really persuasive argument, because obviously it does include music, and and, um, it's not... Originally, when you say the arts, you just immediately start thinking of galleries and things like that, which I'm warming to a little bit as I get older, because originally I was a bit like, you know... I don't know much about art, but I know what I bloody well like. I was very much in <laughs> for a while. But as I get older, I do find myself going to galleries and, you know, I mean, I don't, I still don't understand what pictures are trying to convey or anything like that, but I find myself being able to appreciate them. But in the argument, enlarging it out to just general music and general art, I think it's very compelling. And I'm struggling to find a single question where I can try and, you know, uh, come up and criticize that in any way. Okay. Well, well it well, is. It's every single aspect of our lives, isn't it? It yeah. is, but then that means it also gave us not only the Cheeky Girls, but all 47 Fast and Furious films as well, which I'm sure you cannot see as a positive. I mean, I mean that's true. <laughs> and the, the one opera I, that's true. And the one opera I did go to, I did leave at the interval, and I'm never going to an opera ever again. But... <laughs> yeah, but do you ever listen, do you listen to any music full stop? Yes, lots of music. Just there you opera. go then. There yeah. you go. You love it. You love it. It's the arts. <laughs> Johnny? <laughs> Um, I would like to say for the record that um, I, I have seen both myself and uh, my fellow esteemed judge dancing to the Pet Shop Boys after beer, and that's probably enough to abolish the lot, um, <laughs> if the truth be told. Um, I mean, it's such a huge subject, and I, I found um, found myself kind of looking. We have um, Edward Hopper's Cape Cod Morning on um, on our wall at home because it's just one of my favourite pictures, and it's um, it's just one of those things that gives me a lift because it's just sunshine and open space and kind of very it's just a very hopeful image um Mm. so i i completely get where you're coming from um i I suppose it's a very very open-ended question and i suspect that we could probably all chip in um it's kind of what what drives human beings to create things when we you know you could probably sort of quite happily sit in your armchair and bugger off but there is something within everyone doesn't matter what it is that they create whether it's uh, books music an argument or whatever it happens to be. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's sort of, it's a very, very open-ended question, but what do you think drives human beings to create things? Well, speaking as the font of all knowledge, I have no idea. I think it's, <laughs> it's, 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 um, Sorry, it's that human was a real... nature. It's human nature though, isn't it? It's, it's an unanswerable question because it's beyond our thinking. It's so ingrained in what we are as a species that we cannot even fathom anything that's different to that i think um and i think as as we've seen with examples from neanderthals as well and other human species that it's 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 across the board we we have this desire to create and i wonder whether it's something to do with um passing on a a feeling to somebody else or 
as you get late, you know, move, move down the centuries, whether it's, it's about posterity, it's about leaving something beyond yourself. Um, and I think that's part of it in a way, but also it's just, it's enjoyable too when you're doing it, if you're singing or if you're dancing or if you're, you know, in your middle, in, in the middle of writing a book and it's going well, it's an enjoyable thing. And reading is enjoyable too. So I think that's part of it. Mine is basically, um, so I don't have to get a real job. That's my motivation. <laughs> well, I was going to say that it's, it's obviously I was going to say it's probably unique to humans, but then I remembered Alex, you've seen an elephant paint, haven't you? Yeah, and a dolphin, but I think it was coerced. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I have. I've seen a, an elephant uh, creating a piece of artwork on the floor using banana leaves, and there's not no really other explanation for the moody cow doing it. This is my cat in Thailand. Um, but arranging them just for the sake of making them look nice, which was slightly odd to watch an elephant do it and realise that there was actually that brain power going on. I'm going to put that one there and that one there and then that one there and then I'm going to look at it. I would actually just like to, to thank Rebecca for her answer to my complete hospital pass of a question because it was yeah. actually very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, right. <laughs> Despite recording 356 podcasts in the last 48 hours, I've made an argument. <clears throat> Are you ready? It's even partially serious right. as well. So, I have gone for the moon landing. Uh, man has dreamed of this since time began. Oldest fantasy about going to the moon was some Syrian astrologer bloke whose name I don't know or can't pronounce. Uh, Lucian of Samosata in the 2nd century AD. Galileo staring at it through his telescope. Jules Verne and H.G. Wells talking about going there. Only 24 men have ever gone into deep space and left Earth's orbit. And all of them did so between 1968 and 1972 with Apollo. The moonwalk is still the most requested clip ever for television networks. Uh, Just attending the launch, 20,000 VIPs. I must have diluted it just a bit to get to that number. One million members of the public and 3,500 press in one place. How horrific is that? People wept at liftoff. And Von Braun, the slightly dodgy Nazi character, said it was mankind's finest moment since life first crawled out of the slime. But the reason... I'm voting for the moon landing is not just because it is the most epic sort of uh, summation of man's ambition, but because of how bloody unlikely it was that they were ever going to get there. So when the Russians launched Sputnik in 1957, Alex is revealing her space nerd full frontal now for everybody. uh, NASA didn't even exist. Lyndon Johnson, apparently, who was the Democratic leader in the Senate at the time, said... The Romans ruled the world when they had roads. Britain ruled the world when they had ships. And now the communists have got a foothold in outer space. NASA was founded in 1958, but still wasn't really a whole lot of action going on. Uh, Vanguard, the first satellite for America, got six inches in the air, caught fire and fell back down on the floor again. Uh, I think they call it Flopnik for a joke. And the Kremlin actually sent their condolences. It wasn't until Yuri Gagarin went into orbit and within a few days, the Bay of Pigs happened in 1961 that 
all of this in the first six months of Kennedy's term that he shat himself. Uh, America had not even got out of Earth's orbit when Kennedy announced that he wanted to land on the moon. Uh, $141 billion in today's money is what they spent on it. Um, and it was by no means assured that just because they did spend that money, they were going to get there. It was fraught with danger. They've got no idea at the beginning what floating in space will do to a human body. The computer they used filled an entire room and was basically less power than a Fitbit. Uh, it was essentially just a Casio calculator uh, dealing with men's lives in outer space. The memory on the computer on the lunar module was 36K. It was not safe. Uh, Apollo 1 caught fire on a test, killing everyone in, on board. Um, Americans didn't actually lose an astronaut in flight until the Challenger blew up. But let me tell you about Vasily Komarov, because this poor bloke knew that the spacecraft the Soviets had given him was a piece of junk and was going to kill him. And asked when he did why he didn't refuse to fly, he said that it was because if he refused, then they would have just put Yuri Gagarin in it and he wouldn't do that to his friend. Uh, so his trouble began as soon as he got into orbit on his spaceship. As soon as he got into orbit in Soyuz 1, uh, cosmonauts and engineers knew that this was going to be an issue, uh, but he was in trouble. But Brezhnev and the Politburo were determined that the flight was going to take place, um, probably so that they could try and do a symbolic docking in space to mark the 50th anniversary of the 1917 revolution. Uh, they got up, um, but once up, the solar panel refused to deploy, which meant that the power supply went down um, and it, it basically was tumbling out of control. Uh, you don't necessarily die immediately if you're an astronaut and you're in trouble. Komarov had 26 hours in which to contemplate his death as the Earth's raced up to meet him. Uh, malfunctions mounting. He had time to say goodbye to his wife by video phone. Um, workers at an American listening post in Istanbul heard him advise on how to handle their affairs and discuss the future of their children. Um, when the hard-bitten future Soviet Premier Kozygin came on the line, he was in tears too. Um, and apparently Komarov flew what was by all accounts a brilliant re-entry under the circumstances, but was spinning violently out of control as he reached the Earth's atmosphere, causing his parachute to tangle, followed closely by its backup, and his final moments were spent careening into the steps at 400 miles an hour, conscious and cursing bureaucrats to the last role. So uh, it takes quite a lot to be an astronaut and volunteer for one of these things. Um, even with the moon landings, with Apollo 11, they, they thought it would probably take two or three goes to get it right. So they've got no faith, really, that this thing's going to make it to the moon. Nixon has a disaster speech ready. Uh, Apollo 8 had only become the first American craft to get out of orbit at Christmas 1968. Uh, this is brilliant. This uh, I love the absolute cowboyry of the people that got to the moon. So NASA's disaster plan includes gems like turning all the communications off. Uh, they had toyed with the idea of making the lunar module skin edible as a contingency. And other than that, it pretty much um, consisted of if something goes wrong, hit it with a screwdriver or turn it off and on again. Um, on Apollo 11, Buzz Aldrin actually snapped a key that was supposed to ignite the ascent engine on the lunar module to get them the 60 miles back up. Um, 
therefore stranding himself and Neil Armstrong 240,000 miles from home, and he fixed it by jamming a pen in the hole. Uh, Apollo 12 was hit by lightning on launch, um, because apparently because they launched for Nixon, who'd gone to see the uh, launch, in bad weather. Um, and they decided to just let them all go on to the moon, because the theory was, well, if the parachutes aren't going to open and they all die, at least they'll have had a jolly on the moon beforehand. Um, and Apollo 16's communications were messed up with a Spanish guy trying to woo his girlfriend that kept coming on the line and interrupting them. So how they ever did it and how they got there is an absolute mystery. And yet, on the 20th of July, 1969, crew members of Apollo 11 actually touched down on the surface of the moon, not knowing if the module would fall through the crust, uh, be consumed in fire, or another possibility was being eaten by alien-like insects, or indeed just uh, slipped on ice and crashed to pieces. So it's a miracle they got there, and it's a testimony to mankind's ambition that they did. Excellent. Any go questions? First. Yeah, go, go for it. I mean, interesting you said about um, the technology that they were used. The quote that I, I always like is by John Glenn, who was the first, I think he was the first astronaut to go into orbit, so he wasn't directly connected with the moon landing. But he said, as I hurtled through space, one thought kept crossing through my mind. Every part of this rocket was supplied by the lowest bidder. Yeah. <laughs> needs a, a certain degree of uh, confidence as well just to take off in those circumstances. Yep, they were um, lunatics, all of them. But the moon land is quite interesting. You know, I wasn't that aware of it until the anniversary last year. And then I started to consume endless videos and read articles about it. Um, and it's only then when you realise how touch and go and how the tech was so new and under, under, sort of under tested, really. Um, and in many respects, it is arguably, you know, mankind's greatest achievement. But there were a couple of negatives, at least. I mean, one of the things you hinted at there was the involvement of Werner von Braun, who was a Nazi involved quite heavily in the V2 production of V2 rockets in the Second World War. Uh, he said, and I quote, I didn't know anything that was going on. But seeing as he was a genius... I have my doubts about whether that was true. And did you know that when NASA first got off the ground, they couldn't get the people that they wanted? Uh, most 50%, I think, of the engineers first off at NASA were British. They got them from everywhere. Um, so the idea that the Apollo landings were fueled on Nazi brain power is a little excessive. Alex. There's another argument as well in America, primarily from African-Americans, saying that actually all the money they spent, they could have spent that to bring the majority of African-Americans out of poverty. In fact, Jill Scott Heron wrote a song called Whitey on the Moon about that. Yeah, absolutely. The fact that yeah. Kennedy got I up and I'm... went, we're going to the moon, you buggers, and everyone went, okay, and paid the taxes for it, uh, it'll never happen again. I think also what's quite interesting is, you know, for me, it, having looked into it, as I said, in more detail last year, it, it's incredible. But what also is incredible is how quickly the public lost interest, which isn't to undermine it, it, it isn't to undermine it as an achievement, but they cancelled the last three planned missions. And, you know, who can name, who can name the last man who walked on the moon, for example? Apollo 12 took off only 16 weeks after Apollo 11, and even then the interest was on the wane. It's like a, a capture, that one moment. Um, so uh, it, it really is. It's like a one snapshot moment in time that we won't get again, because no one will ever spend that money on that again. Not unless there's some financial impetus behind it, not unless well, there's I, something I, to be gained. Well, the last man on the moon, for those who are interested, is Gene Cernan, who actually... 
he was on the moon, the, the Apollo 10 that won the one before, um, Apollo 11. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's interested, the, the, um, the top bit of the, where, the top bit where the astronauts sit, I can't remember his name. Um, that's in the science museum, the one from Apollo 10, the exact one, which I keep The command guided. module. Yeah, that the, uh. his command module from Apollo 10 is in the uh, science museum, which is as soon as I found that out, the lockdown started, but as soon as it's ended, and once I've gone to the pub, that's the next yeah. place where I'm going. No, it's well, it's well, that's well worth seeing. One little known fact about the, the moon program is Kennedy was appalled by the cost and he was actually in contact with the Soviets around a joint Soviet US mission to the moon. And then Kennedy was assassinated and it faded away. I mean, Chris Chev at that time wasn't that keen because he was worried that the Americans would realize how, um, poor Soviet technology was and how few uh, intercontinental nuclear missiles they had. But it's a little known fact that it could have ended up being a joint US-Soviet mission to the moon. I mean, he essentially launched the idea of a moon landing to save his presidency. I mean, those first six months were catastrophic. Um, and the, there's different accounts of in the room. Like, apparently they said, like, they wanted to get to the moon. And, and Kennedy said, well, why can't we just land on it? But then there's another account that tells it a different way. But, yeah, the, it was an absolutely ludicrous suggestion. They hadn't even got out of Earth's orbit. And the difference between being in Earth's orbit and being in deep space and being 240,000 miles away at the moon, the difference is massive. It's not just a case of, like, driving on a few extra miles. The difference in the achievement is huge. It's astonishing. I don't know, if, you know, who's seen First Man, for example, but you know, I watched that and I, you sort of, I know how this ends, but it was so tense throughout. It's incredible. Yeah. I mean, the, and yeah, that is a great sequence. That there is a miracle that Neil Armstrong was even alive to fly on Apollo 11. Some of the stuff that that guy had done in test piloting, and there's a, there's a ridiculous, um, training module that they were required to use in, uh, in NASA and he was flying that and I think it it went to shit it started sliding the wrong way and by the time he ejected um, and the thing blew up in a fireball I think they calculated he was two fifths of a second from death basically but also I mean you know the other good thing about them not crashing is if you know one of the things that came out of it was the dust buster of course do you know, have you heard about um, the, the last, the Apollo, I think it's Apollo 16, the two guys that went up, that basically did all the stuff that all the other astronauts wished they'd have done, but they were too busy working on there. So, like, they were rolling about on the floor, um, face planting. Uh, it was, I kind of, it was like the Jack and Charlie show, someone called it, because, and I think the headline in one of the major publications in the States was two klutzes on the moon, because they're basically just pissed around. Well, it's great. If there's a documentary, which I think is on Netflix or Amazon, called The Last Man on the Moon, which covers Gene Cernan, but if you look at that, the footage is, A, the footage is brilliant, because the camera technology has massively improved since the first moon landing, and B, they're the ones with the sort of moon buggers and everything else, and they are doing the pissing about as well in HD. It's brilliant. Another one uh, hit a golf ball as well, didn't he? But actually, even um, that moment where Neil Armstrong plants the flag was like inches away from being a total bust. And it, that, he said, when he actually occasionally did talk about being on the moon because he hated all the publicity that came with it, um, he did say that nobody had any idea what the surface was like and you couldn't actually drive it in. It was basically like coral. And so he had to try and lean it back slightly because the the optics of that flag falling to the floor um, because he hadn't stuck it in the ground properly were what terrified him more than anything else. And apparently he managed to lean it back and put some 
dirt around the bottom and then he and Aldrin just gave it a wide berth. I've, I've got the same worry for my VE day flag in my front garden that's predominantly gravel. <laughs> <laughs> okay, any more questions? No, no questions for me. Johnny, any? No, not questions in particular. I mean, it's, it's a truly fascinating subject. Um, I, many years ago, I read The Right Stuff, the Tom Wolfe book, which was eventually made into film, which it's broadly about, you know, he wanted to learn what made astronauts what they were and why they accepted the the incredible risk with such sort of kind of kind of a blasé approach, I suppose, which was, you know, the, the, the right stuff of the same name. Um other than that, the only observation I have to make is that I was, my mum was actually in hospital for having her 20 week scan with me inside her on the day that um, they landed on the moon. Oh. Oh, there. Oh, hang on. If we're going with that, then they landed on the moon on my birthday, but three years before. <laughs> <laughs> right, when you, when you two have quite finished. Okay. Uh, let's do what we usually do and give those two a chance to briefly confer and decide who's won. But before that, we will go round the virtual pub and find out. Uh, the question is, if you can't have your choice, what are you going for as man slash womankind's greatest achievement? So let's start with James. Okay, everyone actually put on a really good argument here. And it's actually quite hard to choose this week. However, I have to go with my fallback. I have to go with writing... Rebecca, you did try and be cheeky and do the arts, which I feel is quite a nice try. And Alex put up a better argument for the Apollo landings, um, especially as someone who's read Apollo Econ by Cy Liebergott and has the audio of a few of the Apollo landings. But, um, yeah, it has to be writing. It was my fallback. And when you just think of everything, including our profession people, we wouldn't have a profession if we didn't have writing. So, yeah, writing. Yeah. <laughs> Rebecca, <laughs> if you can't have the arts, are you going to go with Emma's? Well, I don't feel like I should know. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think I'd go with, with writing, although obviously mine is better. But, yeah, writing. Emma? Uh, I, mm, I'm going to go with Rebecca's. It would have to be art because that includes, you know, dance and painting and all of the things that make life worth living as far as I'm concerned. Alina? I don't know what everybody argues. Oh, yeah, you weren't here, were you? I'm just going to go with whatever James, exactly. I'm going to go with whatever James did because James James is a dying. Yeah, he is, but his was frankly (laughs) terrible compared to the others tonight, so. You've gone for deep sea diving. Yeah, let's be honest, it was. Who's who's the beer guy? I'll vote for the beer guy. I'll vote for the beer guy. The beer guy. Pete, who would you vote for? Oh, God, it's difficult. I mean, I have to say that I, the problem with something like this is it's reductive and you have to argue against things that are awesome because everything that we've talked about tonight is, is amazing and just a tribute to all the stuff that makes us special. Um, I've, I've often said if someone asked me to choose between uh, drinking beer for the rest of my life and writing for the rest of my life, I would choose writing. So I'm very tempted to go for that. But um, I, I was—I think I was one when the moon landings happened, and uh, last year when we had all those uh, those anniversaries and the, the retrospectives and stuff, I found myself openly weeping at some of the footage of it. So I'm going to have to go with moon landings. Do you know what I love is that um, Alan Bean said it, so one of the guys that walked up there, and I don't know if any of them were alive. No, I didn't have time to Wikipedia it. Um, 
but they are the only people that have seen the whole of Earth from space. Uh, because if you're in Earth's orbit, you can't, you're too close. Um, so, he, and he had this, he was totally zen, um, and just, there was no other way to describe him when the guy met him other than just content and happy. And he basically said, when you stood up there and you saw Earth and it was just this tiny little blob in all this space, and you just, not only were all your petty little concerns just meh, but even things like whose God is right. And if we're down there, and we have that beautiful planet to live on, and we achieve the things we do, who the fuck really cares who made it all happen and where it all came from? It's just a miracle, and let's just enjoy it. I I watched the... uh, You see the colourised version of one of my favourite films, A Master of Life and Death, with David Niven. Mm. Um, Mm. Which was shot... I can't remember exactly when it was shot, but late 40s, wasn't it? And uh, and at the end of that, you see uh, a shot of the Earth from space before anyone had ever seen the Earth from space, and they portray it as a green planet. Yeah. Because no one had ever realised how blue it was, and and that when I saw that, that blew my mind. That really brought home to me what a significant achievement um, you know, space travel has been. One of the astronauts actually said that it was like someone took an achievement and a year, so 1969, they took a year from the 21st century and stuck it in the 60s. That's how out of place it was and how nuts it was that they did it. Um, But if I can't go for the moon landings, I'm going to go for... I'm going to go for the arts with Rebecca as well. The all-encompassing arts. Yay! Uh, Ian. Thank you. Um, there is Buzz Aldrin is still alive and he's on Twitter, so he's well worth following. Maybe you can get him on History Hack. Who knows? Do you know? I'm, do you jest. No. Do you know? You jest, but we are moving towards perhaps getting to speak to someone um who to an astronaut um from that period. But I'm not saying anything because I don't want to make them feel like they have to do it if they're too tired. So, uh, watch this space. Fingers crossed. Hopefully. Excellent. Um, Ian, Excellent. would you go for um, and, Can I, um, well, I was, you know, the moon landings do fascinate me. Did an episode on them on the, uh, on the podcast. Um, but I'm also veering towards art because art, podcasting is an art form. So it does get some favor for me there. But, uh, before I choose, if you're interested in the Apollo moon landings, really recommend 13 minutes to the moon which yeah, is a podcast. it is brilliant it really gives you the emotion and the and if you are a moon landing nerd like i am it is sensational mm. but i am going to choose art yay uh, <laughs> who else andrew <laughs> uh art was quite persuasive but i don't know Maybe there's something so intrinsic and universal about it that it almost doesn't count as an achievement in a way because it's so sort of part of humanity, as Rebecca said. Moon landings, absolutely really romantic. And that, whatever his political troubles, that, that Rice University speech of we, we choose to go to the moon, uh, the moon gets me every time. Beer was, I swept along with that as well. Uh, but I guess what marginal difference does that make over and above other alcohol? I'm not sure. So I'm afraid I have to go with the majority, I think, and go with Emma's rising. Well, obviously, of course. Can I quickly just say something? Yeah, go on. Um, can we actually have Andrew back? Because I want to see how him and Colin 
get on together today. <laughs> I'm sorry, Johnny. You may want to run for the hills. That oh, Clive, you mean? Sorry, Clive. Colin, yeah. worse. <laughs> uh, Clive, yeah. Sorry, Clive. <laughs> this is what happens when I drink too much, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, Andrew and Clive, episode of them on Down the Pub. It would be, but we'd have to suspend all usual format because we just drink while they argued. It'd be great. Uh, Johnny, what way have you gone? Um, yeah, I mean, Andrew and I pondered it. And, and again, I, it's, every, every time we do this um, and every subject we pick, you think, oh, God, how, you know, who's going to argue? Why, how are they going to argue? Um, everyone comes up with such incredibly good, coherent, wonderful arguments for their subject. So it's, it's a real pleasure to listen to them. Um, I think just in terms of the fact that virtually nothing else exists without it, writing is, is, is everything. You know, I, I sat making a short list thinking I'm writing it. There was, there was sort of kind of for me in terms of the argument. It was, it was just sort of sitting there, sort of scribbling my thoughts down, and then coming up with a short list. If only you're taking your notes and interpreted dance instead. I did, we put the video on Twitter. I'm doing it on Twitter, to be fair. But. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, I mean, there, there are certainly um, there are certainly honourable mentions uh, mentions to be had. Um, beer, just because, frankly, I probably wouldn't be married without it. Um, there are there's so many things. The arts, um, especially at, at the moment when you know times are not so great. Um, just seeing a, a great TV program, listening to a great podcast, looking at a great painting, just lifts the spirits, which, you know, it, can, it can't be underestimated in normal times, but times like this, it really is such a boost. Um, but yeah, I think writing, uh, writing is it for me. Holmes, do you concur? I do, but in many ways, this week's sort of been the easiest and the hardest at the same time. I mean, if we go back to the beginning of Mariana Trent, which We've dismissed a little bit, but, but it was an amazing technological achievement. The Cold War, you know, we can all see the benefit of us not being nuked in the 80s. So I think that's a big plus as well, although I'm not entirely convinced it's it's gone away. Modern economy, I've got more of a problem with, you know, if it didn't include the last 20 years, that would be slightly more persuasive. But the ones that have been really problematic to dismiss is the moon landing because it is an amazing technological achievement however you dress it up mm. arguably mankind probably best um the arts as well that li- runs through all our lives like a fairly constant thread beer as johnny's already said um is important to a lot of us particularly the judges on this panel and um <laughs> but ultimately i think as you know as johnny said we may have beer and we may have the arts Without, without writing, but we'd have very little else. So I think writing has to have it. Oh, well done, Emma. Well done, also Emma. as well, well I don't know about you, but mimes freak me out, and we'd all have to mime a lot more. If there was no writing. <laughs> uh, we'll be stuck in a box. Yeah. <laughs> Alex, you've, got to make, you've got to make a cocktail now for this with alphabetic yeah. spaghetti, yeah? It would have been easier if Pete had one because you could just add a beer. <laughs> I mean, it's just so defined yeah. on the cocktails. Oh well. no, I've done them. I just need to post the recipes. Um, they're very impressive. Uh, but mm. yeah, I need to get off my arse and tweet the recipes for them. Uh, you, can, you can mess around with it and just you know pick your favourite written work and uh, and base a cocktail around that. 
Oh yeah. Oh, well done, Johnny. I'll do that. <laughs> Get out there. You know the word the Alex Churchill then. No, Joe. You know I'm going to do. I'm going to. Uh, I'm just going to ignore you all and make a moon cocktail anyway, and say it's on Moon Dust, the book about the moon landings that I love. <laughs> Only because no, I won't. But you know what? I have got gin that apparently has some lunar rock in it or something. I haven't opened it yet, but um, no, I won't. I will save that and I will do you a writing cocktail. Maybe it should be Emma's favourite book because she's the one that won, or her favourite writer. Oh. I have to think about that. Have a think. Okay. Uh, next week we are going to be. We're going to. It's going to be a right. I feel because we're going to debate history's most hilarious moment. Um, mm. I've already had a couple of suggestions sent through that actually did make me cry with laughter. Uh, so yeah, any bumbling <laughs> idiocy that you can think of in history. Uh, Sign up on Twitter. Let us know. Thank you to our newbies today, Andrew, for coming on and just basically confusing the shit out of all of us with an epic argument for the modern economy. Uh, there's a reason I yeah, support the RT subjects in school. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you, Pete, as well. Pete, you are coming back on to talk to us about the history of beer, aren't you? Or something akin to... I would love to, yeah. Excellent. I think Holmes has basically already said he's taking the day off so he can join you. Yes. You're just lucky that there's a lockdown and they can't physically stalk you because I feel that could become a problem. Actually, if you were to now write a book about stinky cheese, I'm pretty sure Johnny would leave his wife and follow you everywhere. <laughs> anyway, um, we're all off to sing a belated uh, bit of Vera Lynn out of the window, possibly. Might scare the crap out of my neighbours, but never mind. This weekend, it is Bob Fest. On Saturday, we will be talking to historians about and screenwriters about how you take um, one unit's experiences of the Second World War and turn them into a frankly epic TV series. On Sunday, we'll be talking to the Easy Kids. That's the descendants of the guys that have been immortalised in the show. And on Monday, it's the big one. It's the cast reunion. Uh, the thought of editing it is making me cry because it's basically six 16 actors and a free-for-all. Um, there's some hilarious moments in there, some very profound ones as well, um, and some things you won't have heard before. So uh, we're looking forward to sharing that with you. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you, Ben. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.